0: Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger.
1: Will, I met with our colleague, historian Laurent Dubois, recently. He came into the studio with me, and we talked for a while about the history of Haiti. He had some pretty interesting things to say.
0: I'm all ears.
2: All right, so in a nutshell, this is what we covered. In many ways, actually, the the most universalist revolution of the age of revolution was the Haitian Revolution.
0: Oh, so he's going to take us back into the late 18th century. So there's a revolt going on on the island against French rule at that time, which is also in some ways entwined with the French Revolution and the American Revolution. But it's complicated, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very complicated. Look, the Haitian Revolution got going just a couple of years after France itself began going through its own convulsions that we now call the French Revolution. And of course, the French Revolution would culminate in the reign of terror and a short-lived republic and the rise of Napoleon as an emperor and so on.
0: So, Siva... I know something about the French Revolution, but quite honestly, in most history textbooks and most basic accounts of these events, Haiti is treated kind of like a footnote to that story. So when Laurent talks about the Haitian Revolution as the most universalized one of that age, what's he getting at?
1: Yeah, it actually has to do with who in Haiti carried out the revolution, and toward what ends?
2: The simple way of explaining that is that it's the Haitian Revolution that actually overthrew slavery. The French Revolution, without the actions of the people in Haiti, um, almost certainly would have preserved slavery, like the American Revolution did. The the reason that the French Republic did abolish slavery was because of a massive revolution in Haiti carried out by enslaved people, the majority of them African-born. They launch a revolt in 1791 in the summer. And by early 1793, they've essentially won the abolition of slavery. And the abolition of slavery they win is, is universal, immediate, and it comes with citizenship, which are all things that abolitionists hadn't even really considered, right?
1: Yeah, so in that sense, as Laurent says, Haiti outran even the wildest dreams of the Enlightenment. Because even the most ardent European and American abolitionists felt a need to move slowly on the question of emancipation. But in Haiti, which was then known as Saint-Domingue, formerly enslaved people established an independent country of their own. Initially, it was split between competing factions in the north and the south of the island, but eventually Haiti was united and free.
2: In fact, the group of representatives from, I'll say Saint-Domingue, but, you know, eventually Haiti, who travel to France and convince the French Republic to abolish slavery are, you know, one African-born man, one man of mixed sort of African and European descent, and one white man. So there's this actually cross-racial alliance. And in the 1790s in France, there's an African-born man who was a survivor of the Middle Passage who's a representative in the parliament.
0: So did you two talk about what Haiti looked like after independence during the 19th century? I mean, I feel like, once again, that's another blind spot in our conventional history of the Americas in this period.
1: Yeah. So what he tells us really challenges a lot of the received wisdom we have about the early 19th century. Haiti was a vibrant place at first culturally diverse, religiously exciting, linguistically fascinating, economically innovative. The prevailing idea in rural areas of Haiti was to cast off a brutal plantation system, like a whole economic system, and replace it with small, self-sufficient agrarian planters. And then the idea would be that wealth and land would be passed down through kin groups.
2: There's often this vision that there's this kind of perpetual economic decline, but 19th century Haiti, um, the population expands massively, which mm-hmm. is always a good sign that the economic system works. People migrate to Haiti from the United States, African Americans, um, from Middle East, from Germany, from other parts of the Caribbean. And it sort of works as an economic system, You know, one that's quite strong in asserting principles about autonomy sovereignty, dignity, you know, that are burdened and and shaken in all kinds of ways. But there are these core ideas that are cultural, but they're also political.
0: That's interesting, Siva, because it sort of runs against what I think a a lot of people think when they consider Haiti, especially in the present day, where, you know, the world sees Haiti as a place of of struggle, of conflict, beset by uh, political uh, turmoil, upheaval, uh, assassination, ecological disasters, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. How does that fit in?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, for European powers and for the United States, the very existence of Haiti, free, formerly enslaved, it directly challenged white supremacy. It directly challenged the endemic racism that informed people's image of government. Uh, You know, and it played into this history so profoundly that it deeply frightened and upset people. So even as the domestic economy of Haiti thrived in the 1800s, the Haitian government was forced to pay France in exchange for international recognition. The French called it an indemnity to compensate the colonists for lost property. So in other words, the Haitian people had to pay the French for their own bodies.
0: Whoa. So basically after the revolution, Haitians have to buy their own freedom— From their former
1: masters? Yeah, exactly. So to the tune of 150 million francs levied in 1825. To put this in perspective, that was 10 times what the United States paid France for the Louisiana Purchase, more than 10 times Haiti's annual budget.
2: Uh, Louis-Joseph Janvier, who is a 19th century Haitian writer, said that the Haitians had to pay for their freedom three times. They first paid for it in sweat as slaves, then they paid for it in blood, fighting for independence, and then they had to pay for it in money.
0: Wow, that really complicates and maybe flips on its head our ideas of revolution and liberation.
1: Yeah, also reparations, right? I mean, we talk about reparations for formerly enslaved people. Here, formerly enslaved people paid reparations to their enslavers. And of course, Haiti had to borrow from French banks to meet that burden. The price tag was eventually reduced a bit, but the interest tallied up. Haitians still couldn't pay all that debt for more than a century. Basically, not until 1947. And here's the kicker, Will. And I know you know this part of the story well. U.S. banking interests got involved, and so did the banking interests of Germany. And in 1915, when a pro-U.S. president in Haiti was assassinated, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson sent the Marines in to protect American business interests
2: and ostensibly to establish order. In fact, at one point just before the occupation, they go in and they actually, essentially, they send in a mission of Marines to take gold reserves out of Haiti. Basically, it's like a bank robbery. So that's actually a pre-invasion moment.
0: Order is an interesting word in this context because, of course, U.S. forces occupied Haiti for almost 20 years until 1934. It was nothing like order. It was, in fact, a disaster.
1: Yeah, 19 years, right? That should feel really familiar to those of us who have just watch the end of a 20-year occupation in Afghanistan. But
2: anyway, here is what Laurent had to say about that experience. Then the U.S. starts making a set of moves. One of the things they really want to do is that the Haitian constitution, when it was written in 1804, outlawed foreign whites from owning land in Haiti. The U.S. wants to change that constitution the Haitian parliament, you know, the elected parliament resists. The U.S. kind of disperses that parliament, and then they rewrite the constitution. And then they begin to use forced labor in the countryside to build roads and to sort of do the the civilizing, and that then incites an uprising in 1918. So from 1918 to 1919, there's a full-on war, a counterinsurgency war, essentially. The U.S., it's the first time they use aerial bombardment against civilian populations, which they do in Haiti um, and parts of Central America. It's a really brutal war in which the U.S. finally triumphs as much superior weaponry, but that changes the dynamics of the occupation and in some ways creates a much more resistant Haitian population um, and also forces the U.S. to put in some of these nation-building projects.
1: Not surprisingly, these projects did not go especially well. And in a lot of ways, this era of Haitian occupation sets into motion the long period of political and social instability in Haiti that we see even today. In addition, the occupation cemented this view of Haiti that still dominates among citizens of the United States and media in the United States.
2: Here's what Laurent said. So we've essentially replaced... Some historical knowledge with a huge set of cultural stereotypes, most of them rather off base that kind of deepen this sort of sense of Haiti as this strange other distant land. And that's where we still are in a lot of ways in the United States is that people think of Haiti as like a faraway place or different versus seeing that over the 20th century, the U.S. has been completely involved in basically everything that's happened in Haiti.
3: So, Will,
1: you know, as I listened to Laurent walk through the history of Haiti in the 18th and 19th centuries, and, and right up into the 20th century, you know, I, I was I was so consistently struck by the ways in which the United States sort of mastered its techniques or its practices or. Or set into motion a pattern of behavior that has repeated itself in Southeast Asia, in other parts of Latin America, in the Caribbean, uh, you know, it seems to have informed our experience in Afghanistan, right? We we view people in these distant countries through stereotypical lenses. We assume their limited capability of self governance. We assume that they need our help and our guidance and our education and our training and our non government organizations and our and our military contractors to to lift them up is that how you see it
0: everywhere the united states has gone it has claimed to be acting in the interests of humanity. And if you look at Haiti, you see 20 years of extraction of resources. Basically, it's designed to squeeze Haiti for its value. It's imposing a certain framework that actually contributes to disorder. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, look, Haiti can't govern itself, so we must remain there to provide more order. And this this happened in Afghanistan in the last 20 years. It happened in Haiti uh, more than a century ago. And it happened in many instances in between during the Cold War when American occupations had much of the same negative effect on the societies in which they were based. So order versus disorder, it depends on who you are and how you look at this. And, and, And
1: we look at all the disorder now. We're seeing as
0: we speak today, there are thousands of
1: people sleeping under a bridge in Del Rio, Texas. They're from Haiti. They're trying to escape the misery that Haiti has suffered the past few months and they're trying desperately to get into the United States.
0: Right. And that's a perfect and tragic example of the way in which this is a feedback loop. So we have to connect the source of the crisis before we can really begin to grapple with who's responsible for the crisis. How can we confront them? We're going to have the same issues dealing with Afghan refugees. Suddenly, Afghan refugees are going to come into the United States. They've been brought here uh, in the evacuation. And people will ask, are we responsible for these people? You bet we are. Right. You know, Laurent was very clear
1: that When you look at the history of Haiti and you look at all of the upheaval and all of the occupations and all the militarism and all the poverty and all the natural disasters, the earthquakes, the storms, the most resilient people on the planet are the people of Haiti. Haiti also, as Laurent says... Has something to offer us in terms of our vision of democracy, economic and political, because the Haitian Revolution could have stood in for the model revolution of the 18th century rather than those imperfect revolutions we often hold up, the French and the American. Well, fortunately, we have no shortage of colleagues right here at the University of Virginia who have a wealth of knowledge and expertise on the Haitian political and social experience. And we're gonna turn now to two of them for some more perspective on this complex story.
0: That's right, Siva, we have with us now Marlena Dout, who is a literary scholar specializing in the Caribbean and its African diaspora. Marlena is associate director of the Carter G. Woodson Institute and has written extensively about the nexus between Haitian history and Haitian fiction. Marlena, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
3: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: We're also joined by Robert Foton,
1: a UVA political scientist and the Julia A. Cooper Professor of Government and Foreign Affairs. His new book is The Guise of Exceptionalism, Unmasking the National Narratives of Haiti and the United States. Robert, it's very good to have you with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Robert, could you start by bringing our listeners up to speed on recent events in Haiti? Clearly, the Country has had a tumultuous summer with the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse on July 7th, and then back to back, an earthquake and then a severe tropical storm. Let's start with the political events. What do we know about Moïse's killing? His term as president was quite controversial, wasn't it?
4: Yes. Well, Moïse was not a popular president. Mm. And he extended his term by a year. And that was perceived by most people in Haiti as an illegal, unconstitutional mm. uh, kind of maneuver. Uh, but his assassination was really shocking for both his supporters and for people who opposed him. Uh, the last assassination in Haiti was in 1915. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in the assassination. It's really a very mysterious phenomenon. Because we have a cast of characters that come from Colombia, the so-called mercenaries. We have people who were in Miami, essentially from uh, Venezuela, but they were Americans. And they invented some scheme to get money to give to a pastor who's a Haitian-American who went to Haiti. His name is Sanon. And Sanon was supposed to become the president because initially the strategy was to kidnap Uh, the president and to force him to resign. Well, something went wrong, obviously. He was viciously uh, assassinated. His wife was also shot, but she is clearly alive. What is even more uh, complicated is that in the last few days, uh, apparently the current prime minister, Ariel Henry, had very peculiar conversations with one of the so-called intellectual author of the assassination at four o'clock in the morning. So the whole thing is very confusing. And then you have, obviously, the political crisis, which is not just a Haitian crisis. It's also one where the major foreign powers are involved. I mean, if you looked at uh, the current prime minister, initially the UN intervened very publicly and said that it was a fellow by the name of Claude Joseph then two or three days after, well, a week afterwards, uh, the core group, which is basically the United States, really, uh, decided, no, 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 it's Ariel Henry. And just overnight, Ariel Henry becomes the prime minister. Now, the opposition initially didn't think that Ariel Henry was a legitimate Uh, prime minister. He was called a de facto prime minister Mm. because he had been nominated unconstitutionally by a de facto president, (laughs) Moïse. And the problem is that we don't have a functioning constitution anymore. We don't have a parliament. We don't have a congress. We have a third of the Senate, which is still elected. So the institutions have really decayed. And what is happening now in the last two weeks, it looks like and this is a very peculiar phenomenon that all of the opposition to Ariel Henry have decided to sign an agreement with Ariel Henry, right. and that Ariel Henry would be not only the prime minister, but kind of a president also. Mm. Uh, and he would be running the show till uh, the end of 2022 when there would be elections, etc.
1: Yeah. So, So it seems like there's no functional institutions, there's no clear. Constitutional process to deal with a situation like this, and it's unclear who was behind and who stands to benefit from the assassination itself. Am I correct? In yeah, I think
4: this is probably an accurate picture of a very confusing right. uh, event. Uh, and uh, we, uh, and actually, uh, the prime minister had been invited, supposedly, by uh, a prosecutor to testify about what was he talking to the guy at 4 o'clock in the morning immediately after the assassination. Well, what Ariel Henry has done is that he has fired the prosecutor and he's fired people in the cabinet who were allies of Jovenel Moïse. Well, so,
1: so nothing seems clear. And yet, if any place needed a functional government this summer, It was Haiti. It faced an earthquake. It faced, at least so far, one tropical storm. I'm sure more are coming, right? How do the people of Haiti cope with these sorts of natural disasters layered upon unnatural disasters?
4: Well, unfortunately, this is not something that is that new. We had, obviously, the earthquake in 2010 that was much more catastrophic in terms of the death. The south of the country, however, has suffered massively. Mm. Schools have been destroyed. Uh, Universities have been destroyed. The population is really in acute crisis. There is limited food. The peasantry, which had its lots, uh, destroyed not only by the earthquake, but also by the, the storm. So we have a really serious uh, situation, and the government is not very effective. Uh, The foreign community has been helpful. United States has sent uh, assistance. But the problem for it, like in 2010, is that the more we get those events, the more we see that we don't have an effective state, and the state is incapable of dealing with its own problems, and it's always dependent on outsiders.
1: But yet there's no trust in NGOs, After 2010, that has all eroded. There's no trust in the United Nations. There's certainly no trust in the United States, right? So
4: I think it's a widespread um, moment of cynicism. And all of these agreements are seen by many Haitians as, you know, same old, same old. Nothing has fundamentally changed. And so the, the crisis is really extremely profound at the political level and obviously at the economic level. Yeah.
0: Marlena, let's step back a little bit. Laurent Dubois walked us through some of the key features of the Haitian Revolution and which is something not well understood in in this country. This is an area you are a specialist in, you've written about, especially France's treatment uh, of the people of Haiti. Can you just walk with us through this history a little bit, dig a little deeper into that story? In particular, you know, how in your view does this colonial history shape Haiti today?
3: Well, I would say um, I would sort of back up to um, Haiti's first independent ruler was a man named Jean Jacques Dessalines. um, And he became emperor of Haiti soon after Haitian independence. And actually, he was assassinated. So, Haiti's first independent leader was assassinated in October 1806 by members of his own political party. And a conspiracy had formed around um, uh, his administration. And very similar to what we're seeing today, Um, And concerning is that many people pointed the finger at one another, just as in the case of Moïse, who orchestrated it, who were pulling the strings. Haiti's two subsequent rulers afterwards, um, Henri Christophe um, and Alexandre Pétion, who had both been generals in the Haitian Revolutionary, pointed the finger at one another. And this led to a civil war. Haiti was separated into two separate states, separately governed states, one by Henri Christophe in the north another by Alexandre Pétion in the south, for 13 long years. Haiti's next leader, Jean-Pierre Boyer, was able to effectively reunite the north and the south into one republic. He also reunited the eastern side of the island, which is today the Dominican Republic. But in 1825, you know, Boyer had been trying to get recognition um, for the Haitian Republic, recognition for their independence from France. Um, he'd been trying that ever since he took office and had kind of been rebuffed, and he had sent delegates and they would be sent home. He had actually proposed various amounts, various trade agreements and treaties. Um, and then suddenly in April of 1825, the French king, who was at that time Charles X of Bourbon, um, changed his mind and issued a decree whereby he said, you know, we'll recognize Haitian independence if you give us most favored nation status and if you pay us 150 million francs to compensate the former enslavers for their land and for the people that they had forced to work for them. So this was astonishing. The world had never seen such an agreement. And there are lots of different opinions about why and what motivated him um, to strike this agreement. And if you think about this from the perspective of the Haitian people, who this is a republic, but they effectively have no say. And all of Haiti's later historians, later 19th century historians say that, you know, Boyer reigned over a republic as if he were a king. Um, and so that at least under Henri Christophe, who had actually made himself a king, or Desaline, who'd made himself an emperor, at least they were calling the thing what it was. Whereas Boyer struck this agreement on his own. And in fact, at the time, there were protests. There were people who protested. There were members of the Boyer government who worked at the treasury, who disagreed profoundly with what he was doing. And they knew that the Haitian people would not long tolerate this situation. Um, The moments of historical convergence with what is happening today are sometimes a little too striking. Um, At one point, Boyer, after having drained the treasury, issued paper banknotes that were not backed by gold. And this caused the Haitian Gourde to fall enormously. And all of these commentators said, you know, he's basically bankrupting his own country with this method.
1: So we've, we've seen this sort of debt politics play out in the late 20th and 21st centuries in lots of places in the world, in Argentina and the Philippines, uh, certainly in Haiti time and time again. But it seems like that model was invented in Haiti. So, Robert, there were U.S. banks involved in this debt as well. Uh, What did the U.S. have to do with this condition in Haiti? And how did that affect or inspire or justify the U.S. invasion in 1915 and the occupation for 19 years after that.
4: Well, that's a that's a, an interesting story. First, you know, the United States was becoming essentially one of the major powers. This is the era also of Wilson, you know, and it's a very racist administration. They look at Haiti and they say, well, enough of this and we are going to take it over. But the, the story is not as simple as it sounds. It never is. <laughs> because I think, uh, and... Uh, I think it's important to look at the Haitian elite. There is a very opportunistic convergence of interest between that Haitian elite and foreign powers. Mm. Even uh, when Boyer accepted to pay that incredible amount of money to get recognition... What Boyer was thinking at the same time is, well, I own a lot of land, I own property. If the French recognize me, I am sure that that property will remain within, you know, the parameters of the Haitian elite. And I think that played a role. So there is a real opportunistic convergence of interest. And the Haitian elite traditionally hasn't given a damn about the larger population. So that is something that has been really used by foreign powers to enter into the country. You always have a significant number in the Haitian ruling groups that are prepared to collaborate. And that happened also in 1915.
0: Robert, the one thing that some Americans, if they know anything about Haiti other than its contemporary struggles and natural disasters, is the Duvalier family and the Duvalier regime. Take us back for a moment. It's a 30-year dynasty, right? And it's one of the most horrific dictatorships that this struggling country had faced. Isn't that right?
4: Yes. uh, François Duvalier, Papa Doc, was really a very brutal There's no other way of putting it. He created the Tonton Makut, which was essentially his militia. And the militia was given free reign to really batter the population in order to keep him in power. Now, his son became... President for life. I should say that both of them were president for life. And uh, Francois Duvalier died in 1971. The son, at 18, became president for life. Expectations were that he wouldn't last, but he lasted till 1986. Jean Claude Duvalier was not as brutal. Uh, He was kind of uh, the smiley face of a dictatorial regime. People Went to jail, people were killed, but you needed to oppose him to get in those situations. Whereas with Francois Duvalier, it was sheer terror. And uh, Jean-Claude didn't have the stomach to stay in power either. He left in 1986, and it's not clear at all that if he had used the army and used the Makut at that time that he would not have stayed in power. And he was forced uh, by protests, by Haitian protests in particular in Gonaïve, to exit. And uh, that led to a series, actually, of military regimes and coups within the coups. Ultimately, that led to the coming to power of jean Bernard who was a priest uh, initially. Then he abandoned the priesthood, uh, but he embodied, if you wish, the will of the masses. It was called lavalas, which in Creole means the flood. And the idea was that you had massive people who were going to change the country. Unfortunately, that story uh, didn't fully materialize.
0: Marlena, what are the national stories, the national narratives that are shaped by this historical memory. Every country has the stories that it tells to its itself and to its its public. And I'm curious to know to what extent the struggle in Haiti against France and then also against the U.S. occupation later in the beginning of the 20th century has shaped Haitian identity. How does this echo today? How does it fit, especially um, looking back on the horrific experience of the Duvalier family dictatorship. I mean, how do Haitians talk about the pieces of the puzzle?
3: Well, it brings to mind an album title by a a Haitian singer and songwriter named Mano Charlemagne, and it's called Nous non malais, Organisation mondiale, which means we are harmed or we're misfortunate in the world system. And I think um, Haitians of the 20th century and the 21st century have intimately understood that since the time of the U.S. occupation, really, obviously there was meddling before, terrible things were happening before. But what's remarkable is that the Haitian government was able to still function, and Haiti was still functioning economically, even as it's paying this huge debt. But when the United States gets involved and confiscates all this money, and because there were German interests as well, and French interests in this, now you see that system of organization this world system analysis that we need to understand how we get from 1804 to you know 2021 um and it involves also the united nations as an organization and it involves ngos and so i think and, and in my conversations when i go back to haiti are they very clearly understand that it's not a conspiracy because a conspiracy would be something that is hidden and that people try to do in the shadows. And, and it's overt. And the entire world watches. We all saw what happened when the Red Cross collected half a billion dollars, supposedly to build houses in Haiti and built 12, I think, and instead you know, created all these tent cities. And we all saw that the UN quote unquote peacekeepers who came to Haiti in the wake of the earthquake during an ongoing occupation, I must mention. There was already an occupation that they brought a cholera epidemic to the country that killed 10,000 Haitians and sickened hundreds of thousands more, and then granted themselves the United Nations immunity. So when you know a singer and songwriter like Mano Charlemagne, who was also once the mayor of Port-au-Prince, says, you know, we are harmed by the world system. We're misfortunate in the world system. This is something that is very, very understood, and that is on the tips of everyone's tongue in Haiti and they know exactly who to blame. And it's not one entity. It's that entity called the world. And and it's the way that it's organized.
0: Marlena, just if you want to follow up, I want to ask, does the Duvalier regime, the family that ruled for that 30-year period, does that fit your framework of essentially a capitalist you know, destruction and exploitation of the country?
3: Oh, absolutely. Because... Um, if, if you think about, so there's a scholar named Patrick and in his book, The Breached Citadel, you know, he has FOIA'd, you know, asked for these these documents from the U.S. government concerning um, François Duvalier and his election. He didn't win the election. He was selected by the United States as this is our preferred candidate. The reason the United States preferred his candidacy was because they were terrified that a communist leader would come to power in Haiti. And there were many things that Francois Duvalier was, but he was not a communist. And this was a boon um, in his cap. He also was not a stranger to or hostile to US factories being set up in Haiti. So I think that um, he was able to, to run on a platform where he said, Basically, black uplift um, that black capitalism could thrive um, in Haiti, and then he turned around and exploited the Haitian people um, because the price of this supposed protection uh, from the world powers was actually insecurity.
1: Well, Marlena, you've you've written about this this idea that there's a distinction, uh, this, a real serious gap between how Haitian cultural leaders, artists, intellectuals, and the Haitian people in general view. Institutions that come from outside, the influence of foreign governments, uh, uh, versus how the Haitian elites view the same institutions and foreign governments and foreign interference. And of course, it's coming back now, this summer, with all of the trauma that Haiti has experienced with the assassination and the earthquake and the storms. There are once again calls for the US to directly mm, intervene in Haiti. What explains this dissonance? between Haiti's cultural leaders and its political elite.
3: I mean, I definitely um, agree with Robert. There are certain um, members of the Haitian populace, um, the Haitian elite, as we call it, who welcome foreign occupation. I mean, when the headlines immediately after the assassination, when Ariel Henry became the sort of presumptive ruler of Haiti, it said Haitians ask for assistance from the United States. No, they didn't. Because if if you spent any time on social media or any time talking to people in Haiti, they said, we don't want your help. Reading the op-eds of people in Haiti who are members of various civil societies and organizations, they said, we do not want another occupation. This is exactly what we, we need to stress. And yet we see this dissonance because we see the prime minister, the presumptive prime minister saying... Yeah, we need assistance. And I think we saw a little bit of that after the earthquake as well. And it's aid that harms. And this is this is what is to me the huge tragedy is that after the earthquake, when Haitians actually do need things like drinkable water and food and clothing and medical care and assistance with first responders, that there's a fear to accept aid. And assistance because it comes with strings attached. And the last time, um, all of the last times that Haitians accepted "quote unquote" help, the helpers came and stayed and left behind huge disasters in their wake. How do you even think about operating with a with a sense of collaboration with foreign governments in a scenario where you're constantly being harmed every time um, you you know reach your hand back out? Um, to meet theirs.
0: That's a powerful indictment of the world system, as you put it, and the way in which the tentacles have sort of warped Haiti's own development, its own democratic evolution. You know, our show is about democracy in danger. and, And what you're telling us is that Haiti's treatment at the hands of both foreign nations, as well as the system, the NGOs, the UN and others, that Haiti's own values of democracy and social justice and self-government have not had the space to evolve. I just wondered, you know, for both of you, where is the space for a Haitian idea of democracy to to develop? Uh, what are the prospects for democracy in Haiti today? Are they consistently snuffed out by external forces? Or has there been, you know, is there a place, a language, a vocabulary in which self-government is actually available as a, as a vision, as a goal. Robert, you want to take that one first?
4: Well, I must confess that I have a very significant difference with Laurent. I think Laurent is very idealistic mm-hmm. about the Haitian past. When you look at the leaders of Haiti, whether it be Toussaint, Dessalines, uh, Christophe, Boyer, those guys were no Democrats. I mean, uh, when you look at the constitution of Toussaint in 1801, is governor for life and is to a large degree a Francophile. You know, he's thinking he's a general in the French army. And the the history of Toussaint to me is really paradigmatic of the Haitian drama. Toussaint was a slave. He became a slave owner. Then he became the leader of the, the enslaved. On the other hand, He never intended to abandon the plantation economy. Whether you talk about Toussaint, Dessalines, Pétion, Boyer, they always had the idea of a code rural. And that was essentially to impose really violent forms of exploitation on the peasantry in order to maintain the plantation because that was the world economy of the time. You can understand to some extent that. But on the other hand, that was their own class interest. So there is a profound division. Now, what is important, too, is the reaction of the population, which fought back against the code rural which also intended to have its independence from the state and one of the things i think is a recurring phenomenon in haiti is the idea on the part of the average haitian they don't want to have anything to do with the state because their encounter with the state is exploitative it's a predatory form of control so therefore they Uh, trust that might have happened after the revolution never really crystallized. So we always had that division between the rulers and the rest of the population. And was that often exploited by foreign agents who, you know, conquer and divide? That's part of the story. I mean, one of the paradigmatic cases is Aristide. Aristide becomes, uh, you know, the leader in, in 1991, probably the only really fair election in Haiti, massive, overwhelming victory. And he's a radical priest. He's from, you know, liberation theology. America is the empire. There is a coup against Aristide, and a very vicious coup, uh, which the CIA was engineering too, And uh, Aristide obviously escapes, is he- alive, and he goes to Venezuela, then he goes to the United States. Then what happens three years afterwards? 25,000 Marines come to Haiti, and who's the president? Aristide. Whatever radical project he may have had is gone, because in order to come back, he signs an agreement with the World Bank and the IMF. But Aristide says he never signed it. So the radical project, when you have 25,000 Marines coming to put you back in power, it dissolves. No one can take him seriously when he says the American empire or what. It's not tenable. Marlena?
3: Liberty or death, independence or death. This is the Haitian revolutionary motto. And we have seen time and time again that there have been factions um, in Haitian society who are willing to live out that principle, recognizing the inherent violence um, that comes along with state authority and state power, because the fact of the matter is that all of Haiti's first leaders, from Dessalines to Boyer to Christophe, oversaw regimes that harmed the Haitian people. So in 1802, Napoleon Leclerc expedition, is what it's called, arrived. Uh, back in Saint-Domingue. Now remember, slavery had been abolished since 1793 um, in Saint-Domingue, uh, upheld by the French National Assembly in 1794. And Leclerc is coming with this huge squadron of about 30,000 French troops, really to reinstate slavery, but they say they're coming for other reasons, right? While Toussaint is extending his arm to Leclerc and trying to negotiate, and eventually does negotiate uh, his defection back to the French army's retirement in effect, a Haitian intellectual history historian uh, from the 19th century named Baron de Vatte. he said, you know, the maroons of the forest, those brave inhabitants of the forest took one look at armed Frenchmen and they hightailed it to the mountains to pick up their machetes because they knew you don't negotiate with the people who come back to put you in chains. I mean, so I do think understanding the way the Haitian past has shaped and informed the Haitian present provides a glimmer of hope, because when in february 1986 the haitian people got rid of the duvalier regime i thought that was a that was a moment and um, it's an instructive lesson that reminds me of the haitian revolution if we take out the big leaders toussaint etc but it is a capitalist world system that is keeping the haitian people in harm's way and that to me is the bigger factor that prevents Patients from thriving and poor people in the United States and around the world from thriving is that the system is designed to keep a few rich people at the top um, and they pull the strings and everyone else struggling and fighting and infighting amongst themselves as well over things that have nothing to do, that are just a smokescreen for that larger capitalist system to keep functioning.
1: Well, uh, Marlena Doubt, Robert Faton, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger.
4: Thank you.
3: Thank you.
1: That was Marlena Dow. She's the author of Tropics of Haiti, Race and the Literary History of the Haitian Revolution in the Atlantic World, 1789 to 1865. And she curates a website on early Haitian print culture. It's called
0: LaGazetteRoyale.com. We also spoke with Robert Faton from the University of Virginia Department of Politics. His many books include Haiti's Predatory Republic, The Unending Transition to Democracy, The Roots of Haitian Despotism, and Haiti, Trapped in the Outer Periphery. Earlier, we heard from Laurent Dubois, the co-director
1: of the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative, which supports this very podcast. Laurent is the author of seven books, including A Colony of Citizens, Revolution, and Slave Emancipation in the French Caribbean, 1787
0: to 1804. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back. Wow. From a history of revolution up to the present, Haiti has struggled and it's suffered. And it's, in some ways, Haiti is a little bit of a mirror to hold up to American democracy. We have our own internal problems, our own crises, our own histories that we're always fighting about. Maybe we can learn something here.
1: Well, look, we've learned from our friends that we really shouldn't idealize the Haitian revolution. Nonetheless, I think it's pretty clear that we've left Haiti in a in a terrible position after all of these years, all this intervention. Everything we have tried has been counterproductive and the Haitian people themselves have been poorly served by their leaders. So what do we do now? How do we how do we look forward? How can we help the Haitian people help themselves? I, you know, clearly it's going to take some fresh original thinking and we're going to have to liberate ourselves from the stereotypes we have about Haiti, its people,
0: its history, its revolution. I was really struck by Marlena's comment that Haiti has been sold out by, quote unquote, the system again and again. She brought some hard evidence to show that at different times of its history— Haiti was forced into a global economic and financial system by big, rich countries. And as she said, even in this era of humanitarian interventions and activity by the Red Cross, Haitians are still coming up short. They're still not receiving the aid money that they're supposed to receive. They're getting handouts rather than structural transformation. So the rich countries still have to get this right and figure out what is this system that keeps on harming Haiti rather than repairing it. But, you know, one thing is certain that
1: people of Haiti deserve every chance to realize everything they were promised by the Haitian Revolution.
0: That's all for this episode. Next time, we'll loop back to the War on Terror and speak with historian Sam Moyne, who says America's 21st century conflicts have created the conditions for invisible, unchecked warfare. The question is, you know, do we want to just focus on making war as humane as we can and never kind of address the underlying problem that a misbegotten war is going on and on?
1: In the meantime, check in with us on Twitter. Our handle there is at DD Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. And visit our website, it's org. There you can find show notes, other things to read, and a full version of my conversation
0: with Laurent Dubois. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. Share us on social media and leave us some stars. Democracy
1: in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns
0: are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And
1: I'm Sivavadiyanathan. Until next time...